How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. More applause. Yes. They knew yes. they knew it was going to be good. So they, they started did. applauding early. Absolutely. Because this is what happens, Mark. They are anticipating your introduction. Excellence. They're anticipating pure excellence, like this show is going to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just want to let people know, Tom McCoy, um, our other co-host, can't be here tonight. May not be here for the next few Thursdays. Because he is performing in Christmas Carol at one of our local community theaters here called Company Theater. Anybody is in the Massachusetts area, please check out Company Theater in Norwell. It is a great shop, and we're very proud of Tom, who's going to be in that show. We also have our in-studio producer, Larry Nelson, who is there. Hello, Larry, who may on occasion <laughs> chime in. How are we all doing tonight? We are doing great, Larry. How about you? Good. It's good to be with you. It is always a pleasure to have you here. It is. It's fun. And so we have quite a remarkable show tonight. So I really, really want to spend the time doing a deep dive into this. Mark, could you please introduce our guest? I can, I can. Tonight, Dr. Joe, we have Dr. Gail Sinatra, who is a professor of psychology and the Stephen H. Crocker Professor of Education at the University of Southern California School of Education, also known as Rossier. Her areas of expertise include climate science education, evolution education, learning theory, knowledge construction, conceptual change learning, literacy, acquisition, assessment, and the public understanding of science. And that's really where we take off. Welcome, Dr. Sinatra. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Joe and Mark. It is a pleasure to have you here. And we're talking tonight specifically about the book that you co-authored, with, is it Barbara Hofer? Yes. Who we probably should read about her as well. Can you tell us a little bit about Barbara? Absolutely. My co-author, Professor Hofer, is uh, a professor from Middlebury College in Vermont. Um, she is a psychologist like myself, and we share uh, research interests and background and have been collaborators for a couple of decades. Across the country, how, how, how did you end up in LA and she wound up in Vermont? Well, we've met many years ago through common conferences where we um, went to the same sessions because we have similar interests and then we began collaborating. So we've been working together, collaborating and publishing together for years. And then we published an article on public understanding of science that came out of a conference we both attended. This was in New York City and it was sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the German equivalent had Europeans involved, Americans involved, and it was on public understanding of science. 
So we published a couple of articles together out of that experience. And then we realized we had more to say and we thought we could do a longer treatment. And then we decided to do uh, the book Science Denial. And here it is folks, Science Denial. And it is remarkable why it happens and what to do about it. But there's a remarkable backstory to this. When did you start writing this book and why? Well, we had gone to that conference about public understanding of science I just mentioned 10 years ago. And mm -hmm. we had written a couple of collaborative articles together uh, in that interim time. So we had started the idea for the book back in a sense 10 years ago because of the work we'd been doing together. But we literally began the book um, pre-COVID and had the whole book drafted in early 2020. So we had anticipated the, this uh, problem with, we had not anticipated this problem would uh, explode the way the virus exploded. We had already been concerned about science doubt, denial and resistance for about 10 years. Yeah, it's remarkable. I, I just want people to hear this. This is in the preface. The day we submitted a draft of this book, February 25th, 2020, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, alerted the nation to the potential community spread of the novel coronavirus. And what has happened since then? It is amazing. I mean, it's just the timing of the book is amazing. So tell us about science denial. So we're both psychologists and we do research together and separately on science learning and motivation, what motivates people to want to learn or not to learn about particular topics. And we've both explored topics in the past uh, in our own research agendas like evolution, like climate change, uh, like genetically modified foods and whether they're safe to eat children's reactions to Pluto being demoted to dwarf planetary status. So both uh, independently and together, we've looked at these particular topics over time and have always been interested in how people understand and misunderstand science and why they do. And what are the emotions and motivations and beliefs around that understanding? Yeah, I think that's really an interesting question. So what are you coming up with? Why, what is the psychology behind science denial? So what we cover in the book are uh, several different aspects of science doubt, resistance, and denial. And what we say is that first, um, science is hard. It's a difficult concept. Um, you may understand more about how the mRNA vaccine works than I do. Um, it's a difficult thing for people to understand. And so there's just the challenge of the conceptual complexity of science. And so it's very easy for people to misunderstand or have misconceptions about it. And it's difficult for those to get resolved if you don't have a lot of expertise and a lot of knowledge about the topic. So there's just the plain regular knowledge, understanding and challenges that you have. But it does get complexified quite a bit when you look at 
things like emotions uh, and motivations and identity. So an example would be that because science is so complex and because we don't really understand, lay people don't really understand how the vaccine works, you might be more likely to read a Facebook post by a friend, someone who is in your group that you identify with. That could be a social group, it could be a political group, uh, could be a family group, whatever group you identify with. And if they are all in on getting vaccinated, that might be what influences you to make that decision. Conversely, if they are all out on getting uh, vaccinated and they don't wanna do it, you may tend to make the same decision. So how identity plays a role in the decisions we make and how we evaluate the science, we talk about that. We talk about emotions. These are very emotional issues. People have heard, for example, that the vaccine causes infertility. Obviously, if you're a young woman like my niece who hopes to get married and have children, that was at a moment of vaccine hesitance for her. She was hearing that from Facebook friends, and she was very concerned. Well, obviously you would be if you had heard that. So there's emotions around these issues. Fortunately, she got that misconception cleared up. She got vaccinated, and then she convinced the friend who had shared that piece of misinformation on Facebook to also get vaccinated, and she got vaccinated. Mm. So it's identity, it's emotions, it's motivations. Motivated reasoning is something that we all do. And it's important for listeners to understand that it isn't one group. It isn't one type of person. It, was, it isn't one political group alone that has challenges with understanding science. We can all fall susceptible to misinformation because there's so much of it out there. Just yesterday, YouTube started taking down uh, vaccine misinformation. They had not been aggressively doing that prior to yesterday. And we're 18 months in to this pandemic. People get a lot of their information from the internet, from Facebook, from Google searching, from YouTube. So it's important for them to take those steps because any one of us can read a post or watch a video and, and believe it, whether or it's scientifically grounded or not, because it may fit with our preconceived notions and we may be motivated to believe it's correct. So these are some of the themes we explore in the book. Hmm. So there's sort of a group mentality around this is what you're suggesting? Oh, absolutely. There were people in the Ozarks just a few weeks ago who were finally convinced enough to go get vaccinated because of the massive outbreak in Missouri. And they didn't want their friends and neighbors who were pretty against the vaccine to know. And they were going to the local clinics in disguise so that their friends and neighbors wouldn't see that they had gone to the other side. Um, and that's the kind of social pressure that your model uh, could probably well explain that you want to remain a part of a group that you identify with. It's your social group. That's a strong um, 
evolutionary pressure. I mean, if you got kicked out of a group hundreds of years ago, you probably didn't survive. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. You were lunch. And that's why value is so important to us because we're social animals. Millions of years ago, we weren't the biggest, the strongest. We weren't the fastest. We were isolated mammals scurrying around, hoping not to be lunch. We were prey. And then we formed these social groups. And our survival potential increased so dramatically, human beings are everywhere. But to access the protection of the group, you have to contribute to the group, which means you have to have value. That's really fascinating. But where, where does this start? You know, in the, in the book, it's you know, section one, science, denial, doubt, and resistance. But what the sequence that you just used was doubt, resistance, denial, which is a little different because it starts with doubt and then leads to resistance and all. So where does the doubt come from? Well, I think healthy skepticism is good and it's a part of the scientific process. So Barbara and I read an article shared by Harvard Magazine about how chocolate and eating chocolate in the morning helps you lose weight. So we're both like, Yay, hopefully, hopefully that's true. You're, you're motivated to believe that one. But if you drill down into the article, you'll see that it was a single study and that it had a small sample size and it really wasn't particularly reliable. So we're all susceptible uh, to fall for uh, motivated reasoning. I'm particularly motivated to enjoy chocolate. So we might all fall prey to uh, either, in that case, it's not misinformation, but it's just information that we probably should doubt. We probably should be skeptical of a single study. So skepticism and doubt can be productive, but it's when you take it really far, which I think we're seeing a lot of people doing who believe you know, nothing from established medical science who, is, who, is, who walk away from all of that and feel like they can't trust another important element of your model. They can't trust anyone who has medical expertise. That's a level of skepticism that leads you to really be in danger of going towards more of the denial that we talk about. And off air, we started talking, Dr. Joe, about uh, if there's any commonalities with the folks that are denying science. And uh, Gail, if you don't mind elaborating for our listeners, that would be great. Yeah, we were just saying that different folks have different doubts or different concerns about different aspects of science. I live in Southern California. My co-author, Barbara Hofer lives in Vermont, and in Vermont and Southern California, there's a lot of doubt, resistance around GMOs, a lot of concerns about whether they're safe to eat. And while the larger issue of agriculture and pesticides are definitely concerns, you, you can eat GMOs, you eat corn that's been genetically modified, you eat kale that's been genetically modified. But a lot of people, um, are concerned about GMOs, and they're also concerned about organic and natural. And so the people who feel that, oh, I don't need to get vaccinated, I eat organic, 
So I have a healthy immune system, I'll be fine. So again, it's certain people have certain things that resonate with them. It again is about what group they identify with. So when you say I eat organic, it's not only about what you eat, it's about who you are. Mm -hmm. But there's other people who have different issues and they have different reasons for perhaps being vaccine hesitant. They don't trust quote, big pharma, they don't trust a vaccine that was supported by government research funds. So there's completely different reasons why other people might be vaccine hesitant. So it isn't a group of people and it isn't one scientific topic that defines the hesitant or the doubtful or the resistant or even the deniers. It really cuts across different types of people and different issues. But, but the example you give is fascinating because here's somebody who's eating organic and who therefore says, my immune system is robust. So they still appreciate some science, but they're being selective as to which science they want to apply to themselves. Well, that's Where what we call cafeteria denial. You pick and choose, ah. right? So one of our um, people that we follow quite closely in his work is Lee McIntyre, local to you at MIT, who's a philosopher. And he just published a book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. And in that book, he went to a flat earth convention. Well, people at the flat earth convention flew in and they sit there and tweet about it on their iPhone. So they're certainly not in denial of modern technology, modern innovation, and so um, he mentions in the book that that group is really, again, an identity, a group of people. There's a social connection they, that, and there's different reasons why they belong to that group. But it certainly is something we would call cafeteria denial, picking and choosing. Um, there's very few people that are um, wholesale denial of all forms of science. Well, isn't science an evolution in and of itself though i mean you're always chasing perfection when it comes to science so is there like a spectrum of denial like i'm not ready to accept your results yet until you finish well this is one of the most challenging things about the novel coronavirus it was called novel because it was new right and at the beginning remember they were saying wash your groceries well that sounds silly to us now, but at the time they were focusing on contact as a point of spread because other kinds of coronaviruses do spread that way. So it was a decent hypothesis that turned out to be largely incorrect. And as information about this novel coronavirus came more sharply into view, then we realized, ah, you gotta wear masks because it's aerosol. And so you hear people say, oh, those scientists, they lied. They lied. But that's not what's happening. Science's strength is it responds to data and evidence, and therefore it does change and evolve. And that's the strength. And so, of course, it changed because it was brand new. And as new evidence emerged, of course, the positions changed. And I think it's a challenge for people who don't understand the evolving nature of science and the tentativeness is its strength 
who are probably the most put off by the changes in recommendations based on new findings. One of the things is we never say, I believe in science because science is not a belief system. What we say is consensus science. In other words, when you have a preponderance of evidence leading towards one conclusion, for example, the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel Report on Climate Change that just came out a couple of weeks ago is pretty conclusive now that humans are the major driver of the degree of climate change we now see. And so now that's the preponderance of evidence. And so, yes, of course, you should doubt the chocolate study I mentioned earlier. You should probably wait and see back in February 2020 if you should be washing your groceries still. But with the preponderance of evidence from the IPCC report, you can be pretty confident that we're far enough along in our understanding to say that we accept the scientific consensus that humans are contributing to climate change. So Mark, there is totally a continuum and it's hard for people who don't have a lot of familiarity with the nature of science itself and how it works to appreciate that. And we've seen in real time and that change this year with COVID. So you used to read science quote unquote facts in a textbook but you don't realize if that's your only exposure to science, that it's a messy human endeavor, but you really saw that last year. And when people were expecting perfect understanding in February, March, and April of 2020 of the novel coronavirus, that expectation probably wasn't realistic. Yeah, it also spoke to the desperation that some people had, please, you know, help us. You know, it's, it's interesting because science denial it's not just restricted to COVID and climate change. One of my heroes is this guy Semmelweis. Um, and Semmelweis was ridiculed back in the 1840s when he suggested that something on our hands was spreading disease and you had to wash your hands. People totally ridiculed him. And then, you know, more recently in the 2000s, um, Barry Marshall, Robin Warren, right, talking about bacteria causing ulcers. Nobody believed them. They eventually wound up winning the Nobel Prize because they changed the paradigm about what was happening. But, but what they were facing was the medical community saying, no, as, as doctors, as physicians, we don't agree with what you're saying. Can't be that simple. So I, I just, the reason I bring it up is because Science and art can happen in many arenas with many, many areas of whether you're a physician or not. I'm not sure many physicians, I hope, would say, don't go get vaccinated. But this is, this is part of who we are as human beings, is this, this idea. Yeah. Well, so, science is a human endeavor. It's conducted by humans with all the strengths and weaknesses we all have as humans. And um, one of my favorite stories about that is plate tectonics. So, um, you know, someone at some point said, you know, I think the continents, you know, sort of float around the earth and the rest of the science community said, what, that, that's crazy talk. You know, what are you saying? There wasn't a, a, a sufficient evidence at the beginning. 
And once the evidence accumulated, there was still some resistance and it took, it took a long time for um, the theory of plate tectonics and the movement of those plates to become broadly accepted. So you do see even the scientific community, um, scientists can be skeptical. It is an important part of science. So you definitely see that they resist too. But I think the key thing to remember there is that never believe a scientist or a study. You know, back to the IPCC, that has hundreds of studies and thousands of uh, contributing scientists from multiple disciplines. Uh, and that tells a story that is coherent. And so you really don't want to believe a scientist with, an, with one study. You really are looking for the consensus view across multiple science studies and multiple scientists, because scientists are humans and they can, individual scientists can make mistakes just like anyone else. But groups of scientists can too, right? Well, yes, back to the plate tectonic example, there was strong resistance on the part of the traditional stasis view that that they did not want to resist. And some, you know, a, a classic academic joke is when does a paradigm shift when all those professors retire? <laughs> then it shifts, right? So again, okay. we're humans uh, just like everybody else. Because <laughs> they will they they'll stifle the creative thought, right? If if that generation or if that group of scientists says, no, 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 we're right. You, Dr. Joe, stop with that I am nonsense. That doesn't make mm -hmm. any, we, it doesn't make sense. Stop. What happened? I mean, you can almost empathize with, with science deniers if, if it's always mm -hmm. evolving. Yeah, it is always evolving. Um, but you wait to the moment where there is a preponderance of evidence. And there are, you know, there are things that we would argue you, you should accept based on the preponderance of evidence. The, the earth is spherical, <laughs> the um, coronavirus is a virus, um, that uh, we can effectively evade uh, with a vaccine, and climate change is exacerbated by human activity. So there's things that we do know, and it's time to jump on that bus. But sure, uh, there are new scientific uh, discoveries or new strands of evidence that will take years to catch on and that traditional scientists themselves may also uh, resist. But, you know, there's a difference between healthy skepticism and willful ignorance of preponderance of facts. And so that's a balancing act we all have to be sensitive to. What, what do you say, what do you say to somebody who is not an anti-vax but says, you know, I'm not going to get the vaccine because I had the coronavirus and I have the antibodies. That's science. It's yeah, they involved. do. They do. And, and, you know, they should discuss with their doctor the degree to which that protects them. That does give them some protection. I just read yesterday that those people, if they get the vaccine, are uber protected and in really great shape for not getting it again. So um, I would say to anyone, um, talk to their doctor and get, you know, multiple 
points of view from medical professionals and then make your decision based on that. I would definitely not say just uh, crowdsource it with your friends on Facebook. That might not be the best way to get the most accurate point of view on a site. No, but one doctor, if you're going to your one doctor, right? That's not really a a study of multiple doctors, right? So That's it's right. still evolving. Get, so. Right, you should get multiple points of view. I do that. I have a primary physician and I ask her questions and my nephew's an infectious disease doctor. Can't say that doesn't come in handy. I ask him yeah. questions. I read what other doctors are saying. I listen to Dr. Fauci. I see what's on CDC and then I make my decision. So why do you think there's so much emotion towards people who are in different camps? So people who are science deniers are angry and about certain things and people who are not science deniers are angry with the science deniers. So how do we, how do we come to terms with this? Well, we, we do? don't put people in groups like that because what we say is individually, we can each be in denial of a particular type of scientific finding. So we don't think it's that there are, is a group of people who are science uh, deniers. We think that each individual either accepts a lot of science or accepts some science or doesn't accept that much science. So it's not like there's um, a group that's specifically a group of science deniers and then another group. Um, it's pretty, as we mentioned, cafeteria denial. There's people who deny some parts of science mm -hmm. and there's acceptance of other parts. But yes, you're absolutely right. We're becoming increasingly polarized on political issues and then increasingly polarized on policy issues and increasingly polarized on scientific issues. You know, when I was younger, you went to school in Massachusetts. My last name starts with S. I remember lining up behind the kid whose name started with R. You got your shots, you went home. I don't even remember if there were permission slips. Maybe there were, but you got your vaccines and there wasn't much fuss about it. And um, it's, it's really become very uh, politicized, which I think is unfortunate because, you know, viruses don't attack political parties, they attack human bodies. And so uh, that's really unfortunate that it's become politicized, but I think that's happened for a long time. Like think about um, Richard Nixon started the EPA. Republicans were always very pro-science back uh, early on with science makes you more uh, competitive. Science contributes to the strength of the economy. Science contributes to our, um, our safety as a nation. So it's um, people shift over time and political viewpoints on science shift over time as well. Yeah, I, I think it's important for people to know that science denial is not something new and, and sort of unique to, to our day and age. It's been around for a long, long time. I'm curious, you know, the I am approach uh, has two truths, right? The idea is that because the four domains, your home, your social, the biological, and the IC interconnect, small changes can have big effects. So usually we wait towards the end of the show, but I think I'd like to bring this in here. 
what small change can you recommend about science denial, doubt, and resistance? How do we address this? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I think that one of the things we try to do in the book is talk about what different types of um, individuals can do to work through these issues. So we have recommendations in each chapter and then chapter eight, we have a full chapter on recommendations for individuals, for educators, for scientists, for science communicators, and for policymakers about what they can do, what individual steps that they can take. Um, so I would say a small change step that would be very impactful. Um, and I'm gonna have to back up a little and give you a little bit about uh, something that you know a lot about, which is the difference between system one and system two thinking. So for your audience, uh, the system one thinking is our quick reaction and it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. And system two thinking is the more reflective and thoughtful approach to problem solving. This comes from Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist, and it relates very much in your model to the theory of, theory of mind. So what small change can individuals make? Well, I think a small change that we can all make is to stop our system one quick knee-jerk reaction to when we see something on Facebook or on Twitter or to when we hear someone make a claim. And instead of just going with our knee-jerk reaction of dismissing it, disrespecting it, distrusting it, stop. Stop for just one second and reflect. Why am I reacting strongly to this person's mask wearing in a restaurant? If they want to wear their mask in the restaurant, why is that bothering me? Maybe they have an immunocompromised son at home. Like stop just for a second and think. Instead of having that knee-jerk reaction, stop for a second and weigh the possibilities. And we've talked to a few people who've read the book who've said they've actually had a few conversations which went better after they read the book because they said, you know, I think I'm gonna do that. I think I'm just gonna stop for a second and reflect on my own reaction, my own feeling about what that post says, what that clickbait headline says, what my neighbor said, what this guy in line at Starbucks said. I'm gonna just stop, reflect for a minute, think about the context of that person, show that person some respect. And that I think would make a large difference from a small change. Yeah, and, and that is totally in line with the I am approach. Absolutely. And instead of system one or system two, we will say the limbic system versus the prefrontal cortex. Now, this limbic, impulsive, irrational sometimes, and then the prefrontal thinking things through and reflecting and wondering. One of the things that we say is it's, it's much more rewarding to wonder than to worry, and it's much more important to be reflective than reflexive. And so I think this, this fits right in. 
And so, so that's once- That's the connection between, in your model, between the brain and the body, right? So that connection of where these processes are located, the system one, system two, is exactly what you said. So it's all coming together right there. Yeah. So the other thing is, and, and what, what I think both of our, our models are talking about and what you're talking about is just because we disagree with someone doesn't mean we value them less. And to come back to this, this concept of value, um, I think that, that some people think that because another person isn't getting vaccinated, that somehow they are devaluing another person. And then we will then react. We, we speak about mirror neurons on the Dr. Joe show and the idea that we respond to somebody else's emotional response. And that's another thing that we can step back and look again. Why are they doing what they're doing? And I'm not going to activate my mirror neurons based on yours. Instead, what I'm going to do is treat you with respect and hopefully activate your mirror neurons. So how do people have the discussion? How do we have the discussion in a rational, prefrontal way, in a system two way, when one person denies and one person is on the other side? Well, back in the day in Massachusetts, and I think you still do this, you used to have town halls. Yes. And I don't know if that's still a thing, but it was when I was growing up. So long before the internet, when a small town in Massachusetts needed to make a decision about whether they were going to fund a new playground, the people came together and discussed the pros and cons. We don't do any of that anymore. We're all in our information bubbles on the internet, and we don't talk to people with different points of view, and we don't even appreciate what those other points of view are because we've never heard them. And so there are people um, on either sides of an issue that are very intolerant um, of the other side, but have they talked to anyone on that side? Have they had a conversation? So we would say, you know, talk to people, talk to people who have different points of view, treat them with respect, listen to their points of view. And we, everyone doesn't do enough of that anymore. We just live in the internet. We live in our information bubbles. We're quick to dismiss people who think differently than we do. And that's not helping us solve global problems like pandemics and climate change. So we're fortunate in our town, we actually do have town hall and town meetings um, and they can be quite volatile at some times where people are but getting up, but they get to say their point of view. Um, it's interesting because as you were speaking, I thought science denial is not just about denying the science, but sometimes we deny each other. And then well, there are Right, I think what you mentioned about, about values People are too dismissive of other people's values and too suspect of those values um, and too willing to characterize people's beliefs and values as extreme 
on one side or the other. And uh, that's not helping us um, get anywhere. Hmm. Very interesting. I, I think that there's um, one other component to this that I'd like to discuss, which is the interim, which is the resistance. Uh, in, in my field in psychiatry, you know, resistance is what we are always struggling with, where somebody is resistant to exploring what's really going on with them. And the I am breaks right through resistance because the, the I am is saying, I'm not going to judge you. We're not going to, we're not judging you. It's, and, and sometimes in resistance, it's not always the secret that's important. It's why somebody thinks it should be secret. But in this case, there seems to be this evolution. There's the doubt and then the resistance and then the denial. Am I, am I missing the sequence here or? I'm not sure if there's a sequence. I think you could, okay. you could certainly argue that that direction, um, but there, there, there could be a different sequence I could envision. But in terms of resistance, um, you as a psychiatrist know better than anyone that what you're resisting is often something other than what you're resisting. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you are in resistance, again, stop and reflect on or get help from someone reflecting on what that resistance is really rooted in, because, as you say, is it really rooted in the actual science itself or is it rooted in something else? Is it rooted in some value or is it rooted in some uh, view of a political stance? Is it rooted in some identity. So it's often trying to decouple um, this, the science from what the resistance is really about. As Stephen Jay Gould used to say, there are no moral lessons in nature. It just is what it is. We, you know, may be very unhappy um, to, to see the way nature works. It's not always pleasant, um, but we should not be drawing our moral lessons from, from nature. Uh, we should be considering uh, other ways to establish values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree about that morality. Stephen Jay Gould is absolutely one of my heroes um, who I think influenced one of my phrases about substance use that addiction is not about morality, it's about mortality. It's just the way the brain works. So is there part of that here? Are we just looking at the way the brain works? That for some people, there seems to be um, a fear of, of having their, their rights taken away. And I think, you know, that is the politicization, unfortunately, of science, as somebody is saying, you know, why why are you telling me to wear a mask? Why are you telling me to do this? And that then maybe supersedes the science because there's now another issue here. Is that part right? Of what you so exactly. So is that really about the mask wearing, or is it really about something else? Is it really about you know not wanting you know regulations or wanting a certain you know freedom? Um, I remember back in Massachusetts when I was a kid and we um, got the seatbelt law. 
I thought that right. people were going to lose their minds. The right. thought of wearing seatbelts, you know, people thought it was just, you know, incredible beyond belief that we could impose such an incredible restriction. And yet today, no one really thinks twice about putting on a seatbelt. What about um, smoking in restaurants? Remember when that was um, banned and people said, that's it, that's the end of restaurants. There'll never be people going to restaurants anymore. Bars will close, it's all over. Well, of course, none of that happened. So the resistance is often about something else. You're not ready to change that part of your your lifestyle. I think that's a lot of it with climate change. People think we're going to have to all go live in a yurt someplace. That's mm. not what, what anyone I think is suggesting, but you will have to potentially make some changes in your lifestyle and people aren't really always willing to do that because they fear the change will be much worse than it is. I have an electric car. I love it. It's really snappy, <laughs> zippy. <laughs> I have solar panels on my roof, so the sun powers my car. It's awesome. I don't pay for gas in eight years. I don't know why people resist electric cars. They're awesome. But I think it's because they feel that they won't, won't be awesome. So often these changes are, you're fearful of them, resistant to them because you think it's going to be a hardship. It's going to be negative. It's going to impact your lifestyle. But most of the time, these changes are either inconsequential, um, like wearing a seatbelt, um, really not going to end businesses like restaurants are still open. And um, driving an electric car isn't a, isn't a sacrifice. It's a lot of fun. Mark, you got a comment on that? Well, especially if there's AI involved in that electric car, then it's really fun. There seems to yeah. be AI everywhere these days, so um, I'm sure they're... I'm sure it is in electric cars. And that that's also a whole nother topic of perhaps why people are also so concerned. You know, what is happening? Afraid. Yeah, we're afraid. Yeah, self-driving cars, you know, that is kind of odd and kind of um, exciting. Exciting for some people and a little terrifying for others. But we always feel that way about change, no matter right. what the change is yeah. so we just have to look at um whether that uh change is really as as drastic and monumental as we think it is or if it actually brings something positive into our lives well with, with that in mind the we spoke about the first truth of the i am small changes have big effects the second truth because everyone is interested in what you think or feel about that and that's the IC domain. And that has an effect on their biological domain because, you know, it feels differently when you feel that you're being treated with respect or disrespect. This means you control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Sinatra, what kind of influence do you want to be? Well, as a professor currently teaching freshmen, um, I want to influence the next generation uh, by empowering them, empowering them to achieve uh, their goals, to do great things, uh, to solve the climate crisis, uh, to invent new technologies, uh, to 
change the course of this world for the better. So I'd like to influence them and I hope I do in my teaching. I think that's wonderful. And I sure can only imagine what it must be like to be one of your students. They must be, I hope, very, very grateful. I always learn as much from them as they learn from me. Yeah, that's so true. I, I, I call my patients my patient teachers because I learned so much from them. Dr. Sinatra, thank you so much for coming tonight. Real quick, how did I get the book? Um, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Joe and Mark. You can get the book um, on Amazon or at your local bookstore. You can ask them to order it for you. Great. Thank you. All right, folks, we'll be back next week with the Dr. Joe Show. See y'all. Go, 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 go